0: On Canonical, we deal with subject matters that may not be suitable for some audiences. This episode can include discussions of rape, murder and execution. Listener discretion is advised. In 1974, Eileen Wuornos was imprisoned for two things. Driving while intoxicated and firing a gun from a moving vehicle. She followed that imprisonment with several more arrests, including those for armed robbery, check forgery and auto theft. These charges wouldn't be the worst things she would do. In fact, by the late 1980s she was a drifter and was about to do something much, much worse. She was going to kill. This is Canonical. had been arrested before. In 74, she was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado for a DUI, disorderly conduct and for firing a 22 caliber pistol from a moving vehicle. She'd had a few run-ins with the law again after her marriage to 69-year-old Louis Gratz fell. She had a habit of involving herself in several confrontations at her local bar and was sent to jail for assault for a short time. Her husband ended up taking a restraining order out on her after she hit him with his own cane just weeks after they were married. Yet another time she ran afoul of the law was upon her return to Michigan, where she was arrested and charged with assault and disturbing the peace, after she threw a cue ball at a bartender's head. She was fined in August of 1976 for drunk driving and used the money she'd inherited after her brother's death to pay the fine and buy various luxuries, including a car, which she wrecked not long after she got it. In May of 1981, she was arrested again, this time in Edgewater, Florida. She'd robbed a convenience store and made off with $35 and two packs of cigarettes. For this, she was charged with armed robbery and sentenced to prison in May of 1982. She was released roughly a year later on June 30, 1983, and again arrested in May of 1984 after she attempted to use forged checks at a bank in Key West. She was also named a person of interest in a theft of a gun and ammunition in Pasco County in November of 1985. When she met Terrier Moore around June of 1986, she'd been arrested again for a multitude of crimes, including car theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice, after she provided an ID that had her aunt's name on it instead of her own. She was also accused of pulling a gun on a male companion and demanding he give her $200. Moore and Warnos were both detained in July of 1987 after an incident where they were both accused of assault and battery with a beer bottle. Moore and Warners had met at a bar in Daytona Beach, Florida, and began a re- relationship which ended shortly before Warnus' final arrest in 1991. While Moore was Warnus' second relationship with a woman, her clients were mainly middle-aged, low- to low-middle-class white men. However, by the time 1990 came around, Moore was suspicious, if not fully aware of what Warnus was up to. That November, Walness took her first victim. On November 30th, 1989, electronic store owner Richard Mallory went missing in Volusia County. Mallory, a convicted rapist, allegedly sodomized and brutally beat Wuornos after he had solicited her services as a sex worker. Two days after he disappeared, a deputy sheriff found his abandoned vehicle and then, on December 13th, his body was found several miles from where his vehicle had been found. He had been shot several times, but his cause of death was the two gunshots to his left lung. During the investigation, Volusia County Police discovered items at a local pawn shop. The receipt had Wuornos' thumbprint on it. They were then able to trace other items from Mallory to Wuornos. This included Mallory's vehicle, which was later found in a warehouse unit that had been rented under an alias by Wuornos. Six months later, Winter Garden construction worker David Spears was declared missing as of May 19, 1990. On June 1, his naked body was found in Citrus County, 40 miles north of Tampa. He'd been shot six times with a .22, and it took police a week to identify him using his dental records. They discovered that his truck had been abandoned on Interstate 75, and by the time he was identified, another victim had been found. This time, 30 miles south of Pasco County, also near Interstate 75, the body of Charles Cascadin, a part-time rodeo worker, was found on June 6th. He had been shot nine times, also with a 22 caliber weapon. The body was found wrapped in an electric blanket and was already decomposing when it was found. Walnos was seen in possession of his car after he disappeared. The decomposition made it difficult for police to identify him, but given the similarity to the other two murders, the gunshots and the nakedness, Cascadon's murder was tentatively linked to the deaths of Spears and Mallory. Police managed to get a real break on July 4th of 1990. Walnos and Moore crashed their car near Orange Springs, Florida. They'd been arguing and ended up leaving the crash scene, but it witness described them to police. The they'd been driving was found to belong to a missing 65-year-old man named Peter Sims. Sims had left Florida for Arkansas in June of 1990, and had last been seen on the 7th. The interior of his vehicle sh- showed signs of a struggle, and police were, un- were able to obtain several fingerprints from the interior as well as a palm print from Wuornos. Unfortunately, the body of Peter Sims has never been found. Following Sims' disappearance, a description of both Warnos and Moore, as well as the M.O. for the crimes, was circulated through Florida as well as nationwide. On August 4th, the body of 50-year-old Ocala sausage salesman Troy Boris was found. It was found in a wooded area off State Road 19 in Marion County. He'd been reported missing on July 31st after his employer realised he'd failed to complete his delivery route on July 30th. His delivery truck was found abandoned the next day, and Burris had been shot twice. Just a month later, the body of Charles Humphreys, a retired Air Force major, former state child abuse investigator, and former chief of police, was found on September 12th. He had been reported missing by his wife on September 11th. He too had been shot several times with a 22 caliber weapon. One of his final victims was Walter Antonio, 62, from Mirror Island. Antonio worked as a trucker, security guard, and police reservist. On November 19th, his nearly naked body was found near a logging road in Dixie County. He'd been dead less than 24 hours, and shot three times in the back and once in the head, also with a twenty-two. Police recognised the similarities in all six of the murder cases and the missing case of Peter Sims. They released the photo fit identities from the Sims case to the media. By mid-December 1990, the police had been led to the identity identification of material more as well as three other names Lee Lori Laurie Grody and Cami Marsh-Green. All three of these names matched to the description of the second photo fit. Walnut later used the Marsh-Green identity to pawn a camera which belonged to Mallory. In aclo- accordance with Floridian law she was required to provide a fingerprint. Once again she used the marsh Green identity to to pawn a set of tools missing from Spears' truck. These fingerprints were used to link Green to Grody and matched those lifted from Seams' car. The NCIC linked all three aliases to Walnos and by January 5th of 1991, the police finally had a focus for their investigation and a manhunt began. Manhunt began and Warnus was tracked to Port Orange, Florida. Local forces were pulled back and the task force tracking her wanted to see if she'd make contact with their second suspect, Teria Moore. She was arrested the following afternoon on January ninth, 1991. Upon her arrest, Warnus was told that she was wanted in relation to minor charges against Laurie Grody. No media was informed of her arrest and no mention was made of any murder charges. Terrier Moore, meanwhile, was traced to her sister's home in Pennsylvania, where she revealed that Warnos had told her about Mallory's murder the day it had happened. Moore said that she deliberately avoided discussing the other suspicious incidents with Warnos as she feared for her own safety. Moore made a deal to help the police with their case against Warnos. Moore pleaded with Wuornos to confess to spare Moore from prosecution as an accomplice. While initially weary on the phone, Warners was faced with the idea that Moore would also go to prison, so she confessed to six of the murders on January 16th. Warners claimed that, she had, that they had been in self-defense, and Moore had no involvement in any of the crimes. At the time, female serial killers were a relative rarity, and the media was attracted to the story like moths to a flame. Warners was a national celebrity overnight, and within two weeks of her arrest, she had already sold the film rights to her life and expected to become rich. She hadn't realized that Florida law specifically forbade um, profiting from criminal enterprise in that way. She wasn't the only one. Investigators and lawyers who had been involved in the case were also hiring media lawyers to negotiate their own deals. Onus' defense team wanted her to plead guilty on the six murder charges in exchange for six consecutive life sentences. On the other hand, the prosecution were pushing for the death penalty. Initially, she was tried for just Richard Mallory's murder, as they felt the case, this case was the strongest. However, the Williams rule in Florida law enables the per- prosecution to introduce evidence from other cases, as it indicated a pattern. The jurors didn't buy Warner's self-defence defense, and Warners didn't do herself any favors when she testified in her own defense. She did this against the advice of her legal counsel and was forced to take the Fifth Amendment repeatedly. The jury found her guilty of first degree murder, unanim- unanimously recommending the death penalty on January 27, 1992. On January 31st of that year, Eileen Warners was sentenced to death by electrocution. Two months later, on March 31st, she pleaded guilty to the murder of Tro- Troy Burris, Charles Humphrey, and David Spears also receiving the death penalty for these crimes. In June of 1992, she added another death sentence to her ledger after she pleaded guilty to the murder of Charles Caskettin and added her sixth and final death sentence for the murder of Walter Antonio. She was never tried for the murder of her seventh victim, Peter Sims, as his body was never found. In 2001, Warners directly petitioned to ask that that her sentence be hurried along. She was cited abusive and inhumane living conditions, and that she was being attacked by a sonic weapon of some kind. Her court-appointed lawyer tried to argue she was irrational. Warnos didn't want to go along with the defense. She instead confessed to the killings once again. Warnes got her wish. She was put to death by lethal injection at 9.47pm on June 6th of 2002. During her final interview, Warnos is quoted as saying, i just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th like the movie big mothership and all I'll be back Thank you for listening to Canonical True Crime Sources for this week's episode include biography.com, history.com and Capital Crime and Context A full list is available right now on our website canonicaltruecrime.com Follow us on Instagram at canonical canonicaltruecrime to keep up to date with all the latest news and be the first to know when a new episode drops. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If we aren't on your favourite platform yet, let us know and we'll do our best to get on there. Next time on Canonical True Crime. Louis Castro told his followers he was an angel and had magical powers. He had managed to convince them that he was hundreds of years old, and that to stay alive, he had to have sex with children. His compound at Angel's Landing also held secrets. Deadly ones.